want us, any of us to ever leave church believing is that you can save yourself through your own efforts. I don't want you to believe that. And it's really subtle. And it's really something that happens simply and we don't notice it because we'll kind of become creatures of habit. Uh, case in point, where we usually sit. And we'll become creatures of habit and we'll start to do things and we'll forget about the why behind the what of what we do. But it's this thin line that is often misinterpreted as, as why we do what we do. And so I want you to know that you are not saved by works. You are saved unto works. You are not saved by works. You are saved unto works because God created you in Christ Jesus and made you alive through his choice. And now that you've been made alive, he has things for you to do to make much of Jesus for the kingdom. So we're not saved by works, we're saved unto works. We are not justified, but we are justified by our faith alone, but not faith that is alone because faith has an action attached to it. I want to take us back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It was a verse that we studied a few, about a month ago, and here's what it says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the things that we do, the actions that we display, the way that we serve the Lord is not for justification. It is simply because God predetermined that we would do things to make much of him because we are his handiwork. And if we are included in God's kingdom to participate in what he is doing to make Jesus known, there is this fact that the Holy Spirit's the one who leads us to do this. Sometimes it is simply through filling bulletins. Sometimes it's through having different meetings to get people together to make sure that we're on the same page to make much of Jesus. Sometimes it's by doing sound. Sometimes it's by being a prayer warrior behind the scenes. But if we ever look to God and say, look what I've done for you, Lord, that's when we've missed it. And that's when we prove that we're attempting to justify ourselves. And the reason this specific point is so important before I even really get into the text is that religions and denominations, and if I'm honest, cults have been created out of this division because people start to think, well, I do this to justify myself rather than what Paul teaches in this passage, which is about oneness. So if you're taking notes and there will be a test, I'd encourage you to write this down. Biblical unity is oneness in truth. In fact, that point's going to go throughout this entire text, so don't miss that one. If you take one thing away, biblical unity is oneness in truth. It's wrapped around in truth. It is about truth. It is not about preference. It's not about what we do to not have conflict. It is being one in truth. And often when we teach the Word of God and we teach duty without doctrine, we can suck the life out of the Word of God. So don't think the things that you're going to hear today are about you just doing to justify yourself. All right, I beat that dead horse. Let's go. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I, Paul, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is an ode. He said this in chapter 3 as well, where he said that he was a prisoner of the Lord. And even though he was handcuffed to a guard, even though he was under Nero, the emperor, who had put him in, in this, this prison in his home where he could not do anything and he was on this house arrest, he still saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord because he knew he was bought at a price. 
But I want us to be reminded that being a prisoner of the Lord, being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, mind you, is costly. It will cost you your dreams. It will cost you your priority list. You will no longer be your own person, Christian. You will be a part of a people. And that's difficult for people to understand because we often want to have our own identity in what we do. And when we are God's people, a prisoner to Christ, he has purchased us and our behavior backs up our beliefs. Our behavior backs up our beliefs. So he says, I urge you to live a life worthy. And live often gets translated in other translations to walk. To walk in a way that is worthy. And our Christian walk is talked about often in Scripture, and it's also talked about in Christodom, in conversations that we have. How's your Christian walk? How are you doing with that? But the Christian walk often is not defined. And this Christian walk refers to a daily conduct. So what do they mean by a Christian walk? What is your daily conduct? Not what you did six years ago. But what are you doing today? Your walk is how you proclaim the gospel before and after you open your mouth. Your walk is how you proclaim the gospel before and after you open your mouth. There's a quote. A lot of people have uh, been attributed to this quote, but it says this, preach the gospel every day, and if necessary, use words. That sounds good. We should put that on a uh, t-shirt. We should post that on Facebook. The problem is that's not biblical. Because in order to preach the gospel, we have to open our mouths. We have to let others know of the good news of what Christ has done for us. But how we walk and how we live gives us the opportunity to speak up about the truth without being discounted because our life should back up what we believe. And our daily conduct is a representation of how we are growing. You may not be where you want to be, but praise God you're not where you used to be. Because as you follow him, as you trust him, as you chase after Jesus, you start to see growth happen. And because alive things grow, if we're found in Christ, no matter our age, we ought to grow. Over time, we ought to look more and more like Jesus. And it's through circumstances and through those rough circumstances that our responses and our application of God's word and our obedience to his commands start to refine us and make us look more like Jesus. See, our spiritual growth is the panorama of our daily conduct. Our spiritual growth is the panorama of our daily conduct. And the more that we follow him, the more that we trust him, the more that we'll grow into his likeness if we're doing it for the right reasons. He says to walk a life that's worthy. Worthy means to match one's practice with their position. Do you know your position, child of God? Do you know that you are a child of God? Do you believe that? If you've trusted Jesus, do you realize that your position is no longer a slave to sin, but you are a child of the God most high? We should never come into church with a frown if we're children of God, ever. Because this is where the children of God get to worship him. This is where the children of God get to corporately say, yes, Lord, thank you for saving a wretch like me. And if you're not in relationship with God yet, I'd encourage you to get to know the people in this room. Get to know them and see how, for some of us, for decades, the Lord has walked with us and changed us and transformed us more into his likeness. 
So let me just ask a simple question. If you're in a small group, I'd encourage you to write this question down. Are you a, de are you a dependent of God's? Are you a dependent of God's? See how I often when I talk about my kids, I go, those are my four dependents, only when they're being bad. But are you a dependent of God's? And is that evidenced by you actually depending upon God? Do you live a life that has dependence upon God? Because Paul is telling us that if we are his, we walk in a manner that is worthy. Oh, no. Because if you're like me, you've screwed up this week. But it's not about perfection. It's about pursuit. It's not about being perfect. It's about pursuing the one who is perfect. But if we're honest, too many of us claim that we are pursuing Jesus when we're really just pursuing moral deistic reform. Here's what I mean by that. We start to try to clean ourselves up. Well, I should stop swearing. I should stop doing this. I should stop doing that. And we don't do it through a conviction of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We do it because we want to look the part. But if you were called by God, you were not called to clean yourself up, church, or to present yourself as more self-righteous. But those who are called are changed for the glory of his name. And calling refers to God's sovereign choice to give salvation. See, calling gets used a lot. We throw that term around. I was called to do this. I was called to do that. Really? Did, he, did, he, did your phone ring? Like, calling refers to God's sovereign choice to give you salvation. That is your calling. So what's your calling? To follow Jesus. That's my calling. Well, I feel called to go do this ministry. Maybe. But really, the calling that he's talking about is the one where God chose to save a wretch like you and I. So if we're going to allow our conduct to be consistent with our character, we have to walk in a life that is worthy of the Lord that we've been called to follow. We must. Verse 2. Ephesians 4, verse 2. Be, here's a, here's a harsh word, completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So we have to do some work with this word completely. What Paul is about to say regarding our behavior is impossible without the Holy Spirit living inside us and dominating our demeanor, okay? So what he's about to say, you cannot do in your own effort. It's impossible. It is impossible to be completely humble. It is impossible to be completely gentle, be completely patient, and to bear with one another in love without the Spirit of God residing in you. And as he tells us to be completely, based on the sentence structure, I would assume he doesn't just mean humble. I think he means be completely gentle and be completely patient, which again is impossible without the Holy Spirit residing in us. This word humble, uh, I, you know, this was news to me. This, this idea of being humble didn't exist outside of Scripture. The first place it was talked about was in Scripture, and it meant Jesus. And when I think of Jesus, I think of someone that is completely humble. But he also meant the people that follow Jesus, the people that get rubbed off on by Jesus. And humility is a virtue that those of us who have been captivated by the Holy Spirit, we actually increase in. We become more humble, not because we try, but because the circumstances we've gone through have humbled us. See what God does there? Let me take you to Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says it this way. This is a very known passage, but I just we're going to read it real fast and just look at one point. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Ooh, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Oh, I'm glad he said that. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. To be humble means to take on the posture of humiliation. That's what it means. To be humble means to take on the posture of humiliation, which means that you cannot, if, if God is making you more humble, means you cannot focus on yourself. You can't focus on your reputation. You can't focus on your priorities and needs. But at any cost necessary, you put the needs of others above your own. This is what it means to be completely humble. Like our king, Jesus, who took on death for us, who hung on a cross, bloody and broken and naked before his own mom. That is a posture of humiliation. So it says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So if unity is the objective Christian, being humble and gentle and patient are essential because unity does not come from fighting and arguing and complaining. Being gentle implies a meekness, a controlled power to not attempt to win but to tie. To not try to win, but to tie. I was hearing a preacher talk about the idea of being gentle with your spouse, and he called it a submission competition. A submission competition that we both submit to the Lord, and we're in competition to submit to him. And if we are under Christ, as prisoners of the Lord's, we attempt to submit to his will rather than our own. And being humble and gentle is not what our flesh would determine, but is the evidence of the Spirit of God inside of us. So again, we cannot do this without the Spirit of God residing in us. I never want us to think that doing things for the Lord are bad. Okay, I know changes are happening. I know, hey, we were doing this, but now we're not doing that. It's not that what you were doing was bad if you were doing it for the right reasons. My fear is that what we do, we tend to treat as justification. And I know I've done it over and over and over again, and I didn't see it in real time. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be completely patient. Patience is something that I struggle with. Anyone else? Just me? Okay, four of you and liars. Awesome. Patience means long-suffering. And it means to seek unity even when your patience is being tried and tested. We joke about this idea that if, if you need something, if God's going to grow you in something, he's going to give you a circumstance to be tested in that. So it's like, you know, I prayed for patience, got four kids, right? Like, these are the things that we joke about. But you think about it, it makes perfect sense to why God would allow us to do it that way. There is wisdom and purpose behind this method of growth because someone who has not had the opportunity to be tested and challenged has not had the opportunity to grow if you haven't been tested in one of these things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm probably going to step on toes. You can send me an email. I'm going on vacation. I won't check until Thursday. But a lot of our educational system is built on information transfer. You learn this, take this test, 
and then move on. And what have you done with most of the information you've learned? It's gone. And one of the reasons that we teach that way, and unfortunately it even seeps into the church as we teach the Word of God, is because it doesn't require any relational risk to just give you information. But to grow more in the likeness of Jesus means that you'll be tested over and over again in relationship to do what Jesus does, to treat others as Jesus treats them, to see others as Jesus sees them. And if you're like me, you're going to fail over and over again, but it is through those failures that we learn. Who do you need to apologize today to? You want some simple application? There's some, because I guarantee each of us have an application point with that question. Who do we need to apologize to today? Unfortunately, the world thinks it's through our successes that we learn the most. I've never been to a leadership conference where it says, let me tell you how to fail, right? And yet, one of my mentors, Tom, said to me once, he said, Tim, you always learn far more through what you fail and how you fail than when you succeed. And it's interesting how God allows that. This word patient means long-suffering, to suffer over time. And the opposite of being long-suffering, to be patient, is to be quick-tempered, quick to get angry, fly off the handle and be reactionary. But, you know, there's this thing in us that unfortunately propagates this in us. See, I grew up very reactionary. I grew up very reactionary. My father and I would argue and, and these things, and you're like, oh, that's why you are the way that you are. I've grown, especially since the Spirit of God has resided in me. But one of the things that I had was... I had a punch reflex, so it wasn't a good idea to scare me. Let's just put it that way, okay? And I would like, you know, like, ah, right? And I didn't have siblings, so I didn't have anyone messing with me. I didn't get toughened up in that way. And so uh, Great America has this thing. Uh, it's now called the haunt, and I don't recommend it unless you like to scream. But it's this thing where uh, mostly teenagers can go through it and be scared. And about 19 years ago, okay, before I knew Jesus and I was in high school, no one told me what it was. And we didn't have the internet the way we have it now so I could look up everything. And so we went, and within 30 seconds of walking through the turnstile into the place, someone scared me, and I didn't keep my hands to myself, and I got thrown out. Okay? That was an example of being reactionary without the Spirit of God. Ironically, I went this past Friday with my wife and sister-in-laws, and I just held on to my wife the entire time so my hands were, you know, held. But I've grown. I didn't touch anyone other than my wife, and that's okay. The Bible says so. So, but the work of the Holy Spirit can grow us to be more patient through circumstances that grow us. But it will require these opportunities for us to be tested. And the difference between a reaction and a response is often just a moment. The difference between a response and a reaction is just a moment, maybe a couple seconds. One of the main reasons we're quick to react rather than respond to things in wisdom, it's because it's part of our human nature to react when we think someone's wrong. We have these landmines in our minds that are often triggered by insecurities. And you could think of your own right now. You could think of what would someone have to say to me to get me to react? And it is this lack of self-control and patience that often creates conflicts in relationships that we have in and outside of the church. 
See, we need to be courteous with people. We need to be long-suffering. And often, because we look to our own needs and preferences first, we do not take into account what others need, what God's people needs. But long-suffering or patience can often be confused for apathy, can it? If you're too patient, people are like, oh, he's apathetic. He doesn't care. But ironically, patience takes time, doesn't it? Imagine that. So this being completely humble, being gentle, being patient are reflected as we forbear love for one another. Jesus says in John 13, 35, he says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It could say everyone will know you are my disciples by how much money you give in church, how often you attend, how many Bible passages you've memorized. But instead, he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And there is no more important evidence for one's following, knowing, and being submitted to Jesus than loving one another. The one another's are a common theme throughout the New Testament and reflect the need that we have to actually have relationship with one another. And how we treat one another is indicative of what we truly believe. So we bear this responsibility to not only say we love one another as God's children, but to actually put that love into action by being willing to lay down our lives. Verse 3, Ephesians 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, capital S, through the bond of peace. Redeemed child of God, if you've said you are a child of God, you are able, you are activated, and to be honest, you're expected to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you are indeed in Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this is expected of you. And he bonds us. Two people who are both dominated by the Holy Spirit will seek peace with one another because that is what the Holy Spirit does. But if you don't, you should probably check where your heart's at. Verse 4, he says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Uh, have, has anyone ever noticed that there are a bunch of denominations in the Christian church? Talk back to me real fast. What are a few of them? Go. Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, peace be with you. What else? Okay, okay. A couple of those actually weren't Christian. But there are a lot of denominations in the church. And one of the reasons there are a lot of denominations in the church is because we as people tend to take secondary things and make them of first importance. Do you notice that? For thousands of years, we've taken secondary things, not saved by grace through faith in Christ, but worship style, or translation of the Bible, or even what we emphasize outside of the gospel. And we take things other than Jesus Christ and be making much of him as things of first importance. If that's worship or worship style, maybe worship songs, worship arrangements, type of preaching, translations of the Bible, times that we meet, what order of service is, the type of small groups or Sunday school that we do, type of evangelism or discipleship methods, and don't even get me started with end times. And it is these things that we start to create division in the church. 
all things that create a level of ownership for believers that should always be open-handed and seeped in prayer. One of a pastor that I appreciate, and I've read a lot of his books, he once said in this conference, he goes, it was just pastors in the room. How many of your, how many of your theologies have changed as you follow Jesus? Yeah. And every person who follows Jesus has to say, I know more today than I did when I first started to follow Jesus. And so things started to morph. Things started to, excuse me, evolve in our understanding of Scripture. But Paul addresses what our unity is founded on, in, and through. There is one body of believers, people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who have found their sole means of justification simply and only in Him, their right standing, which was accomplished by Jesus, not by you. That is what unifies us, not our service in the community, not our Bible knowledge, not our track record or even membership in a church, that does not bond us together. Only Jesus Christ does. And he proves this by giving each person who has become his people his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the counselor, the advocate, the intercessor, the seal of our salvation. That is how you can know you are part of God's people. So it's not some type of, quote, perfect theology, or any other thing that makes us good enough to be in right relationship with God, it's completely because God predetermined it and gave us His Spirit. And guess what? It's not evidenced by you speaking in some gibberish language. It's not evidenced by you going underneath water and coming out of it. The Spirit of God is the one who grows us, and as we participate, here's a good word, cooperate with the conviction of the Spirit inside of us to put to death sin and to put into practice the very words of God, it starts to show us that we're in relationship with Him. So if you're not sure if you have the Holy Spirit, let's talk. If you're not sure the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, let's talk. Because we need to know if we're God's people. We need to know if the Spirit of God resides in us. So how can you know if you receive the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you some simplistic things from Scripture to help us see this. How can you know if you receive the Holy Spirit, if you are God's people? First, you have to do what He says. Okay? It starts with that. Not perfectly, but pursuing. But the thing, one of the things He says, and we're familiar with this passage in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches to all these God-fearing Jews who just missed it. They didn't know Jesus yet. And he gets up filled with the Spirit, dominated by the Holy Spirit, and he preaches that everyone killed Jesus and that they need him, and he was raised to life by God, and now they can trust in him. In verse 37 of Acts 2, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. That term means conviction. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he doesn't say. Believe. He says repent. And the difference between belief and repentance is severity. Okay, here's what I mean by that. The difference between belief and repentance is severity. I can believe something without it actually making a lick of difference in my life. But if I repent, I'm giving up something. And in most cases, it's severe. 
So he says, repent, change direction, stop following the ways of this world and follow me. He says, follow Jesus, repent and be baptized. Huh. It would be really easy to take what Peter means to say, I have to be baptized in order to be saved. But that would be a work. That would be something you have to do in order to prove that you have been saved, and that's not the gospel because the gospel's not about you, it's about what Jesus has done. So no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, make known your repentance. Repent and be baptized. Make known your repentance. Don't just repent in your heart, do it in your life. And the symbol of doing this, to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, is to change direction, to go underneath water and come out in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So first you do what God says. You repent and be baptized. Then you have to check and see if being saved or justified or being adopted into the kingdom of God makes any difference to you. Let me take you to Matthew 13, 44. Jesus starts to lay out these examples, and he says, The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The kingdom of heaven is above and beyond this world in our order of priority. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ, is above and beyond this world in our priority. And the business of the kingdom is more important than our preference or our pleasures, because it's all about him. And then he goes on and he gives another example, and he says in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This was not about selling everything you had, which most people start to think it is. This is about priority. This is about what's most important. Where is the kingdom of God and Jesus the Son and God's church, his bride, in your priority list? Where is it? Not intellectually, but practically. How important is the kingdom of God. See, I once heard from someone that I heard teaching that they said, if you ever want to know where your heart is, look at your checkbook. Ouch. But I pay everything online now, so that doesn't exactly work. But let me tell you, if you want to know what your priorities are, look at your calendar. If you want to know what your priorities are, look at your calendar. But please don't mistake activity for worship of deity, okay? Just because you're busy doing Christian things doesn't necessarily mean it's worship of God. Are the things that you spend most of your time on furthering of the gospel or furthering of your own agenda? What you do, does it further the gospel? Does it make known that Jesus is the Christ? Is it helping you grow to look more like him so you can reflect him? And lastly, if you want to know if you have received the Holy Spirit, does he lead you towards things that require faith in Jesus? Because that's what the Spirit of God does. Does he lead you towards things that require faith in Jesus? Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's, that's a high expectation, church. And this is about letting go and letting God lead you. 
It's always been about this. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about becoming more like him and giving of your life in exchange for the life that is founded only in him. So he says, called to be one body, that is the church, one spirit. And then he says, one hope. And hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation. I live the way that I do. I say the things that I say. I try to make my life about Jesus because I have a hope that passes anything this world can offer. And it is the understanding that this life is not all that we get. This life with pain, this life with choice and sin and suffering and anger will one day be replaced. It will be superseded. It will give way to a life that has no more of any of those things in perfect harmony with God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't wait. And it is this hope that we lean on, it is this hope that we trust in, it is this hope that God's people look to in times of trial and times of celebration. He goes on, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. Jesus is and has always been God. Do you know that when he was born to Mary, he had existed for eternity past? Way before that. And he didn't procure becoming God. He didn't earn it. He didn't achieve it. He has always been. Before he was born in the flesh, he was. And he existed, and he reigned, and he ruled. And God the Father and the Son are one. There is one Lord. There are no other competing deities or possible threats to his throne. He is Lord above all and in all and through all. And I need you to know you have to check to see if the Lord that you worship is the one that the Bible actually talks about. Rather than one that you've made up in your own mind. I hear people talking about Jesus at coffee shops and restaurants, and a lot of times I cringe because the Jesus they're explaining is not the Jesus of the Bible. It is the Jesus that they want to believe in that is sanitized and doesn't ask anything of them. Luke says it this way. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of explaining it from Luke's understanding. It says this, Luke 13, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So this kind of corresponds with Matthew 7 to an extent. It's not exactly the same. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. Wow. That's scary. And you know how we can know that this is not, he's not talking about us? If the Spirit of God, the seal of our salvation, the comforter and counselor resides in us and he leads us and he convicts us of our sin and we actually do something about it. See, a lot of us, we don't want grace. We want a celestial sugar daddy who's a pushover, who spoils us with everything we could ever want, rather than telling us, what we really need, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And his church is not led by a human committee, board, or council. 
His church is led by Jesus Christ, one Lord and one faith. And this is not talking about the amount of faith that one person has. This is talking about the object of your faith. So is your faith in Jesus? Let me ask you some questions. Does your faith in Jesus Christ stir you towards love for one God and three persons? Do you love the Father? Do you love the Son? Do you love the Holy Spirit? Does your faith in Jesus point you to do what our God has said to do in his word? And does your faith in Jesus point you to loving other believers as siblings? And do you love people far from God as sheep without a shepherd? Because if your faith system does not, I need to tell you, you may have faith in something, but it's not the real Jesus Christ. He says one baptism. We who have become God's people have been baptized into his name. We have initiation, not as a have to, but as a get to. And baptism has never been the finish line. It's always been the starting blocks to start to follow him. And our believer's baptism is done so we can outwardly show we believe inwardly. Verse 6. Worship team, you can come on up. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Amen. So if you're going to be unified as one church, if we are going to be unified as one church, two expressions, reaching a city, if we're going to be alive in Christ, sharing his love, if we're going to grow more into the likeness of Jesus together, we do this not through compromising to each other's preference, but to getting before God, the Father, ourselves, in prayer. Opening his word on our own, not just having someone teach it to you on Sunday, and begging God to give the leaders of his church wisdom, giving us wisdom that passes earthly understanding. See, I would hate to grow numerically over and over and just have the pews full and have to have seven, I really hope I'm not asking this from God, have seven services and and buy more property and build more buildings and have a nest egg in the bank, and have decades of being a super large, influential church, and not see anyone grow spiritually, or make a disciple, or see a dead person come alive through the gospel. What a waste. John Wesley, the theologian, said it this way, I want the whole Christ for my Savior. I want the whole Bible for my book. I want the whole church for my fellowship, and the whole world for my mission field. So what an absolute waste to make our unity around attempting to not have disagreements or our unity and our oneness of just being something that we do so there's no conflict because Jesus brought conflict. But we are one God. We believe in one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And as we seek to make much of him, through our words, actions, and lives, I promise you, take this from a young man, if you will, I promise you that following Jesus is worth it. But don't take my words for it. Remember Jesus' own words. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. COV, have you made your life about Jesus Christ? From the Bible. And how would you know unless you are pursuing and knowing who he is by actually reading and obeying what the word of God says? We're going to worship. We're going to worship through song. We're going to worship through 
offering. And so if you came prepared to give, don't feel that you have to do this. But also in your bulletin on the back, there's a prayer card prayer request, or you can just let us know that you're new here, or you can let us know something going on or something you'd like to know from us, and I'd encourage you to tear this off. You can do it, and we have thicker paper, so it's easier. Yeah! Booyah! We'd encourage you to fill that out, and as we take the offering, it'll be right up here, and people are going to come down the aisle to drop off their offering or drop off this card, but if you came prepared to give, we'd encourage you to do so because God is using this church to make much of his name, and we trust that the money that his servants, his children give will be multiplied to make more of Jesus throughout the world. Let's pray. Father, I can be wordy, but I love your word. And I believe you came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray as we give of our offering, as we sing praises to your name, Lord, I pray that you'd get all the honor. And, Lord, as we allow what was taught to resonate in our hearts, God, I pray you would convict us where we're not obeying. And you would give us the faith to do what you've asked us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.